basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When we left Project Mercury, they were celebrating the third successful orbital flight of an American astronaut. But, more to the point, they were, I think, taking a great deal of satisfaction from the fact that Wally Shiraz's flight had been a textbook mission. And this is because while the first two flights had been success stories, they had been a lot closer to the line than the Project Mercury staff had really been comfortable with. John Glenn had difficulty with a number of spacecraft systems and had struggled to retain enough fuel for re-entry. The team had dealt with a false alarm that had tested the flight control team's ability to diagnose potential failures on orbit. And it had also tested the mission management team's ability to respond to real-time issues. Late changes to procedures that were necessary to deal with the false alarm had meant that there were some tense moments during Glenn's re-entry when the team wondered if they would see the astronaut safely home. And then Scott Carpenter had flat out run out of fuel during re-entry, uh, and the re-entry was not particularly well executed, and that had resulted in more tense moments in Mercury control and some significant embarrassment for NASA when the astronaut splashed down well outside the primary recovery area and had spent uh, a fair amount of time alone on his survival raft out of contact with the forces that were sent to collect him and his capsule. But Wally Shiraz's flight had featured none of that kind of drama. The flight of Sigma-7 had lived up to its name. It had been a solid, well-planned, well-executed piece of spacecraft and mission engineering. In a sense, though, that fact presented its own issues for Project Mercury. Having proven that orbital flight could be done, and done well, um, what else was there for Project Mercury to prove? The program had always been designed as a response to the Soviet Union's monopoly on human spaceflight. It was set up to get America in the game and to prove that the United States had not ceded the high ground of space to its Cold War adversary. Because of that, Mercury really did not provide a lot of scope for doing more than getting one human off the plant and planet and then back again safely. The capsule itself and all of its systems were focused around that one goal. It was not a platform for doing either scientific research about space or engineering investigations about how to live and work there. Furthermore, in the background, Mercury's younger but bigger siblings were growing up and increasingly taking up space in NASA's house and in the imagination of the nation. President Kennedy's challenge to go to the moon was, increasingly, becoming the principal focus of the manned spaceflight part of NASA. The Apollo program was well into the process of being stood up and organized. Early design of the missions and the various components required for them was underway, and trade studies were being furiously conducted. 
and as the limitations of the Mercury spacecraft as a platform for preparing for Apollo and validating some of those analyses became more and more apparent, its successor, Gemini, was moving to center stage because it was being designed from the ground up to teach NASA what it needed to know to leave Earth's orbit. By the fall of 1963, less than one-fifth of the 2,500 staff working at the Manned Space Center worked on Project Mercury. So, what was left for Project Mercury? Well, the one major objective that had always been on Project Mercury's list, albeit as a bit of a stretch goal in many people's minds, was to put a human in orbit for more than a day. And that human being was going to be Gordon Cooper. Scheduled to launch in April 1963, by the time Gordon Cooper landed, he would have spent more time on orbit than John Glenn, Scott Carpenter, and Wally Schirra combined. In fact, Cooper's planned 22 orbits would represent almost three-quarters of the time Americans would spend on orbit to that point. Now, it should be noted in fairness that Cooper's planned stay on orbit would still only be the third longest that a human had spent off the planet. The Soviets had twice sent cosmonauts to space for longer periods of time. Andrian Nikolaev had flown for 64 orbits, and Pavel Popovich had flown for 48 but Cooper's planned flight of 22 would edge out German Titov's flight of 17 orbits. So there was definitely no sense that NASA had caught up to the Russian space program, but NASA engineers increasingly felt that they had momentum and that they were narrowing the gap. So the decision to complete 22 orbits, which would take about 34 hours, um, did add some complexity to the flight, and that's why it took a while to prepare. The first complexity, which sounds a little tri trivial but isn't, is that it would mean that the mission would require more than one flight control team. Until this last flight of the Mercury program, there had only ever been one team of flight controllers for Project Mercury. There was a single individual responsible for each position, both for preparing for the mission and for following and supporting the mission while it was on orbit. But a 34-hour mission could not be handled by a single shift in the Mercury Control Center. For Cooper's mission, there would have to be two mission control teams, which meant two flight directors. Again, the addition of a second flight director sounds kind of like a trivial thing, but I suspect that given the nature of the job and of the personalities of the people doing that job, that it wasn't trivial. Until the final flight of the Mercury program, uh, officially Mercury Atlas 9, there had only ever been one man who had been in charge of a Mercury mission, and that was Chris Kraft. Other flight controllers had moved on and had trained their replacements, but Kraft was the only flight director that Mercury had ever had. For Mercury Atlas 9, he would be joined by John Hodge, who would be the flight director for the middle part of the mission. Hodge was a British-born engineer who had come to the United States by way of Canada, actually. He was one of a group of Canadian engineers that had moved en masse from Canada to the Space Task Group when the Avro Arrow had been cancelled. Now, this is another one of those fascinating little episodes to which I hope one day to devote a, a whole episode, maybe. Suffice it to say that if you're a Canadian and you work in aerospace, you can't hear the words Avro Arrow 
without wondering what might have been. Now, for everyone else, um, let's just say that in a very real sense, the cancellation of the Avro Aero project was one of Canada's main contributions to putting man on the moon. But as I said, that's a topic for another day. At any rate, John Hodge, British born and Canadian trained, became only the second flight director in NASA's history. Kraft and his team would handle the launch and the early orbits of the mission, and Hodge and his team would handle the middle portion of the mission, which included a lot of time when the capsule was powered down and Cooper was expected to rest or sleep, and then Kraft's team would return for the final stages of flight and for re-entry. Honestly, if you want a little hint as to the issue of transitioning to a second flight control team and a second flight director, you really only need to look at the flight plan. Kraft's team was scheduled to be in control during virtually every critical phase or decision in the flight plan. And now no one says much about this in the histories, and to do so would be to diminish the accomplishments of Hodge and his team, which would be really unfair. But it would also ignore the fact that the multiple shift system um, would become ingrained in mission control to the point where it really wasn't noticed after a little while. But NASA would still retain a system of having a lead flight director for each flight, and flight plans were often designed where they could be, such that the primary activities of the flight were performed during the lead flight director's shift. All of which little digression is just another way of saying that with Mercury Atlas 9, NASA was passing another important milestone in its maturation from a one-project organization into the truly massive agency that it is today, and the profession of Terranaut was evolving and growing at the same time. The second set of changes that needed to be made for Mercury Atlas 9 were, obviously, finding uh, ways to boost the consumables on board to support a mission that was four times as long as the last one. Um, in the end, it basically came down to a trade that involved adding weight uh, in the form of extra oxygen and batteries and fuel and subtracting weight in the form of the periscope, which no one liked anyways. Its deletion saved a full 76 pounds of weight, which freed up a lot of mass margin for those extra consumables. The final issue that needed to be dealt with was similar to that on Wally Shiraz's flight, and that was uh, coverage. First of all, coverage of possible recovery areas. As we noted uh, for the flight of Sigma-7, the availability of mission recovery forces actually forced that flight into six orbits instead of seven, because there simply weren't enough ships or planes to reach the areas that a spacecraft would fly over if it flew seven orbits. Well, this problem was exacerbated significantly for Cooper's flight. Essentially, in 34 orbits, there was basically no portion of the Earth between the latitudes of 33 degrees north and 33 degrees south that he would not pass over. Finding and deploying U.S. military forces to be nearby, in case they were needed in this massive area, was actually a job that started, well, even before Scott Carpenter's second flight. And it took over a year to arrange, and the forces eventually included 28 ships, 171 aircraft, and fully 18,000 U.S. service personnel. The other issue about coverage was that by the end of the flight, Cooper would be out of contact with all but three stations on the ground because of the way that his orbit had processed, one of which of 
these stations wouldn't actually be on the ground. It would be on a ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So Gordon Cooper would only be able to talk to the ground for about 18 to 20 minutes of his final 90-minute orbit. It's a measure of how well the interaction between Shira and the flight control team had gone that everyone felt that this was going to be an acceptable solution. And in fact, the flight of Faith 7, as Cooper dubbed his spacecraft, was to prove to be the final proof of how much NASA had learned about how to conduct a space mission and to reinforce the need for the crew on orbit and the controllers on the ground to work together to accomplish the mission. The pre-flight preparation for Mercury Atlas 9 actually didn't go all that smoothly. In late January, the booster for the mission, labeled 130D, for anyone who's keeping score, um, failed its rollout inspection from the factory and had to be returned for some rewiring. Now, while this might seem to be an event which isn't meant to inspire a lot of confidence on one level, on another level, I actually think it does, because to me it indicates that the Mercury program had achieved a level of maturity where it was focused on finding errors before they became critical, uh, or moving left of boom, as it is sometimes called. Turning the booster back at the factory door is not good, but not discovering those same issues until the booster is on the launch pad or until they endanger the mission itself would have been much worse. In the end, the rollout failure caused a delay of a few weeks. And the first launch was attempted on the 14th of May, 1963, but a series of issues with the radar site in Bermuda, as well as some problems with launch site equipment caused the launch to be scrubbed. But the next day, on the 15th of May, 1963, Faith 7 successfully left the launch pad on schedule, and Gordon Cooper became the fourth Mercury astronaut to orbit the Earth. He would be the last. By the time of his launch, NASA had already decided that, assuming Mercury Atlas 9 was successful, there wouldn't be any more Project Mercury flights. So, pretty much everyone involved in Cooper's flight knew, knew that it would be the last flight of a Mercury spacecraft. The launch, again, was completely nominal, and Faith 7 began its journey, quote, smack dab in the middle of the go plot, unquote, according to Mercury Control Capcom Wally Giron. By the time Cooper was over the Zanzibar ground station, he learned that his trajectory was looking good enough to allow him to complete at least 20 orbits, which meant that he would be the first American to spend a whole day in space. By his third orbit, he was well into his program of 11 different experiments. He ejected a small 6-inch satellite, a sphere with a bright xenon light, and he was supposed to be able to see if it was visible from the capsule. Um, in the end, he didn't actually see it until sunset on his next orbit, but he was uh, eventually able to confirm that he had, quote, launched a satellite from his satellite, unquote. He had less success uh, with a tethered balloon experiment, this experiment was a repeat of one that had been tried on Carpenter's flight. A 30-inch mylar sphere was supposed to be ejected and then inflated with nitrogen, and while staying tethered to the capsule by a 100-foot nylon line. Um, the experiment was supposed to measure the differences in drag between apogee and perigee. Cooper tried multiple times to deploy the experiment, but he never was able to get it to work. Pretty soon, he had been in space longer than any other American. 
And starting on his seventh orbit, he began doing some radiation and hydraulic experiments. The radiation experiments mainly consisted of turning the recording equipment on and off at precise times, but the hydraulic experiments appear to have consisted of pumping fluid manually from one tank to another, uh, which sounds fine until you also hear that one of the fluids was human urine, and I have not found a source that explains where that came from. And also, once you know that the hypodermic-type syringes that were used to do the pumping were described as um, unwieldy and exasperatingly leaky, which doesn't make that sound like it was the most enjoyable part of the mission. By the time it had completed 10 hours in space, Faith 7 had settled into an orbit that was so close to the planned trajectory that deviations from it were being measured in fractions of a nautical mile. Gordon Cooper was circling the Earth every 88 minutes and 45 seconds. Starting on orbit 9, the astronaut and the capsule entered a rest period for four orbits, or nearly seven hours. The spacecraft systems were powered down, and Cooper was supposed to be left alone by the ground to get some sleep, or at least some rest. But on orbit, Gordon Cooper was not sleepy. Having no planned activities allowed him, though, to indulge his own passion, for photography and observation. He took some of the best of his best pictures on this circuit. Pictures from a perspective that seems very familiar to us today, but in 1963, being able to look down on the high plateaus of the Himalayas and see rivers and villages and even individual houses was a remarkable achievement. And it was proof that humanity really was able to leave the planet and to look back at it. Eventually, Cooper fell asleep and spent the next six hours alternating between napping and snapping more amazing photographs. Uh, he awoke and returned to work on the 14th orbit, and soon after that, on orbit 16, passed the 24-hour mark on orbit. Much of the rest of the flight was consumed with experiments, although many of these mostly consisted of taking pictures of the ground or of astronomical phenomena and even some of the first infrared weather photos, another piece of technology that has become a completely integral part of our daily lives, but which was utterly novel in 1963. It had all been going very well. According to Gene Krantz, the flight controllers had entered that state of relaxed awareness where, quote, you tune your senses keenly to pick up even the slightest departure from the norm. It seems that you have a second sense running in the background, almost subliminal, that can pick up the slightest deviation, unquote. But there hadn't been very many deviations until the end of the 19th orbit. Emerging from the coverage gap over Hawaii, Cooper reported, quite matter-of-factly, that his 0.05G light in the cockpit was coming on. This light would normally have indicated that the capsule was experiencing Earth's gravity and hence was in re-entry. Since he was still orbiting the Earth, it was clearly malfunctioning, and so he turned off the circuit that controlled it. This, on the face of it, didn't sound like a major malfunction. Unless, of course, you're the Terranaut on the ground that's responsible for capsule systems, and you happen to know that the same circuit that controls the light also controls the automatic control system and that if the light is on, it's because the control system thinks that re-entry has begun. And if the system thinks that re-entry has begun, 
it can't be used to automatically control the spacecraft during retrofire. That would now have to be done manually. So the ground began working with Cooper on orbit to confirm that the real source of the problem was a malfunctioning automatic control system and that Cooper would, in fact, have to manage the retrofire procedure himself. Once the re-entry process had actually begun, however, it was established that the automatic control system would once more be available to manage the re-entry process. Overall, the response from the ground and the orbit were a demonstration of the maturity that the program had reached. The problem was reported calmly, it was isolated, a test was designed and conducted, the failure was confirmed, and a workaround was designed and implemented. New procedures were written on the spot, and everyone who might be affected was brought up to speed. In short, it was a pretty normal day in mission control. Well, and then things got worse. As Faith 7 entered its final orbit, its trajectory, as we have said, meant that it was only in contact with three ground stations, and one of those was the final one aboard the ship Coastal Sentry south of Japan with John Glenn as the Capcom. As he came into view of the second last ground station in Zanzibar, Cooper kind of got everybody's attention when he announced that, quote, his automatic control system inverter had failed. When asked, he confirmed that he couldn't get the backup inverter to start either. In other words, the capsule's autopilot system was now completely offline, and the rest of the flight, including the delicate process of re-entry, would have to be done manually. With this knowledge in hand, and with less than five minutes available in their window of communications with Cooper, the ground station at Zanzibar effectively rewrote the re-entry checklist, sent it up to Cooper, so that he could start working through it as he went out of contact. And then, by the time Cooper raised John Glenn on the coastal sentry, he was able to report that his checklist was complete, except for the pyros. He only even mentioned the fact that he was going to have to fly the whole procedure manually as a kind of parenthetical comment as the time for the retrofire approached. Glenn then started to count down to the retrofire, which Cooper performed virtually flawlessly, and 40 minutes later he was aboard the carrier USS Kearsage, just as Wally Shira had been before him, if anything, Cooper landed closer to the carrier than Shira had done. It was a fitting end to the Mercury program, because it was the culmination of so much that had been learned over the course of the program. In this last flight, NASA and the Mercury program proved not only that they had mastered the technology to get a human being into orbit and bring them back safely, but they had also proved that they had mastered the skills necessary to handle the small anomalies, failures, and crises that such an exercise was always going to entail. And they had learned the art of teamwork with a team spread across the face of the planet and circling the planet as well. The final flight of Project Mercury showed that spaceflight would always be a cooperative exercise between the controllers on the ground and the crew on orbit. Without Gordon Cooper's skills and outlook as a test pilot, Faith 7 literally would not have made it home but the support and advice that Cooper received ensured that he knew what he had to do, and his training and knowledge meant that he had the confidence that he knew he could do it. So what more is there to be said about Project Mercury? It certainly accomplished its goal of getting an American into space. But maybe more importantly, it got America 
into space. And even more importantly than that, from my perspective, they got the world into space. Now, unlike the Soviet space program, which was really an extension of the military, and very closed and secretive even by Soviet standards, NASA was a civil space program, and it was conducted very much in the public eye, still is. And because of that, NASA and its astronauts connected with people, not only in the United States, but around the world. Project Mercury's quest also connected with scientists and engineers around the world who started thinking themselves about how they could use space to solve problems or to learn about our world. Now, I think in a very real sense that that kind of thinking led directly to other space programs, including the first Canadian satellite, Alouette, which actually launched on September 29, 1962, a few weeks before Wally Shiraz's flight of Sigma-7. And that's a story I hope to tell one day on Terranauts as well. I guess the long and short of it is that I'm saying that Project Mercury really did launch the profession of what I now call the Terranaut. It meant that space had become a domain where humans could expect to do things from, not just wonder about. To be fair, uh, the number of people thinking those thoughts was pretty limited in 1963. At NASA, there were only 2,500 people actively engaged in the process of designing spacecraft and planning missions they would perform. I'm not sure how many other people were doing it worldwide, but it probably wasn't much more than that number. And the technology was pretty primitive compared to what we experience today nearly 60 years later. When space is so tightly integrated into our lives that we take it mostly for granted, and we don't really think twice about seeing pictures from space, or using space assets to communicate with one another all the time. The ra that reality was still a ways away in 1963 when Gordon Cooper took the very first weather photos from space. But by the end of Project Mercury, discussions about leaving the planet were no longer the realm of science fiction. They were the realm of engineering fact. And because Project Mercury generated so many new questions, and because scientists and engineers imagine so many new uses of this newfound access to space, the end of Project Mercury was really only the end of the beginning of our human journey off the planet. Well, that's going to do it for today for Terranauts. Thanks very much for listening. As always, if you want to support the podcast, you can rate or review us on your podcatcher app. You can respond with some feedback, or you can recommend us to a friend. Thanks for your support, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down. <laughs>